Hello dreamers and welcome back to a brand new episode of California Dreaming. While I so enjoyed creating the last seven episodes of the tale of the great feather heist, I am kind of glad to be moving on to different stories now. I got way more invested in that than I thought I would. I want to thank you all so much for the wonderful comments and the feedback about that case. I came away with more knowledge about wildlife, nature, history, flutes, museums, artwork, hunting, and of course, salmon flies. Though surprisingly, I didn't really learn all that much about actual fishing. So now that we are saying goodbye to Edwin, Kirk, Long, and all of the fly fishers around the world, I am anxious to get into the story, which I was trying to get to you within the month of October because the person who suggested it to me, I've mentioned him before, Nate B. Over the last year or so, he's been sending me lots of true crime books. This was a case that I don't think that there is a book for. He said that there is no podcast that has ever covered this story, but I have seen it told on some investigation shows. He asked if I would cover it, and I said that I would. It will take us back to California after spending all this time with Edwin in England. I did search for the case on Listen Notes and in my podcast app, and I found zero results. So I do like that this will be something that hasn't been told yet. Though it is a story that is kind of cliche in some ways. It's about two very young people that fell in love very hard and very fast. His parents were beside themselves with how quickly things progressed between their son and the new girl in his life. Probably for several reasons, the main one being the fact that she was underage. At the time that they got together, he was 20 and she was 16. As for her parents, well, they weren't as bothered by it. A fact that his parents simply didn't understand, much less agree with. And his folks did, as many parents do, they gave him an ultimatum. And as a young man in love does, as many young men in love do, he did not choose mom and dad. A decision that would set his life on a path towards a tragedy that he wouldn't have or couldn't have seen coming. This is California Dreamings, episode 208, The Tale of... A May-December Romance. Okay, just want to talk about a few things before we get to today's case. California Dreaming is an independent, one-woman, ad-free show. Episodes are released weekly on Tuesdays, and I use the terms weekly and Tuesdays loosely. We don't have seasons, we just kind of plow through the year by the seat of our pants, and somehow we end up with a year's worth of shows. We are on pace to having completed about 47 episodes in 2021 on the regular show, and we've pulled off so far 16 full-length episodes on Patreon. By the end of the year, we should have at least 19, I'm going to go for 19, possibly 20, so I've somehow managed to live up to the promise of one episode per month for every single Patreon member, and then some, whether you contribute $1 or $100. Everyone gets to listen. Patrons are the sole reason California Dreaming gets produced, and if a subscription isn't your thing, 
and you'd like to help support the show by making a one-time contribution, which is unofficially Fred's Snacks and Treats Fund, you can do so by making a one-time donation to the show through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. And please stay tuned for a promo at the end of today's episode from a new podcast called World's Dumbest Criminals. All right, let's get on with today's episode. The backdrop of today's story is Lancaster, California, the year 1997. Lancaster is a charter city in Los Angeles County, meaning its government is defined by their own charter document rather than by general law. It's located in the Antelope Valley in the western Mojave Desert. Its population back in 97 was somewhere around 60,000 less than what it is today. Because Lancaster is 2,350 feet or 720 meters above sea level, situated on a high, flat valley, it's referred to as the High Desert. So it gets very hot in the summer and relatively cold in the winter. Georgia and Larry Priestmeyer were the parents to a feisty teenager, Amy. Not unlike many other teens, Amy was rebellious. Her parents seemed to have little to no control over what she did, where she went, or who she associated with. She did what she wanted to do, and they appeared to be somewhat resigned to the fact that their 16-year-old simply would not be controlled by anything that they had to say or any rules that they attempted to lay down. That is, if they had any. It is early on in the story to pass judgment just yet on Georgia and Larry's parenting styles. Let's just say it's kind of a little bit of foreshadowing here. But you may draw your own conclusions as we go along here, and we might end up having a little bit of sympathy for them in the end. We'll see. From the beginning of the school year of the fall of 1996, 16-year-old Amy Pressmeyer was a good student, allegedly, enrolled in advanced placement classes. She played sports, she was pretty, she was popular, and she enjoyed goofing off with her friends. She was very fun-loving, though the fun did involve a lot of partying, and the partying involved a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs. But by all accounts, it wasn't anything serious, all in good fun, and again, I say, allegedly. However, according to one of Amy's friends, Sarah Chapin, who was an honor student and a cheerleader, and she was Miss Lancaster 1997, Things kind of took a turn when a young woman named Jennifer Kellogg came into the picture. Jennifer was a couple of years older than Amy. She was 18, and she was known to be much more wild, even described as dangerous by some, than the friends that Amy normally kept. Jennifer was as loyal as loyal could get. She was one who would always have your back. She was there if you were ever in a bind or found yourself in some sort of predicament or in some kind of trouble, yet she would also be the one who often helped you find your way into a bind or into a predicament or into trouble. She was that friend that your parents didn't want you to hang around with, but you did anyway because she was so cool. Another member of Amy's little circle of friends was a young woman named Shailene Cowles. She was the same age as Amy, 16. 
She was the sweet one of the group, perhaps a little bit more naive than the rest, but wanted to be included, even though the others were those girls that the rest of the school might define as the mean girls. I will periodically remind you who each of these girls is because I know it can be mixed up. I'm terrible with names when I'm listening to podcasts. So Amy is the main character. You'll get to know her well. Jennifer is the bad girl, the wild child. Sarah is Miss Lancaster. And Shailene is the younger sister of the other main character in the story who I will introduce to you in a moment. So we got ourselves here, a group of mean girls. At least that's the kind of reputation that they had. Most of them anyway. Amy and Jennifer were the kind of girls that chased after whatever it was that they wanted at any given moment. They wanted to have fun. They wanted to party. They wanted to be going out. They wanted to be up all hours of the night. They wanted to drink. They wanted to do drugs. They wanted to be with boys. They wanted to be free. They would not be told what to do. They would not be following any rules and they would not be controlled by anyone, parents included. They wanted to behave like adults. They wanted all of the freedom that goes along with being adults, but they were far, far from it mentally, emotionally, or in maturity. So in December of 1996, Amy's parents, Georgia and Larry, went on vacation without her, leaving her home to her own devices. Now, I did say that Amy was a good student. She got good grades. She played sports. Your cliche, quote unquote, all-American girl, I guess. But I also did say that at some point after the school year started, she took up with her mischievous new friend, Jennifer Kellogg. How much or how little Amy's parents knew about Jennifer, we really don't know. Did they know that Amy was a drinking, drugging, boy-crazy party animal that probably shouldn't be trusted to have the run of the house while they're out of town? Again, we don't know. My opinion, based on what I know of the story and the events to come, I'm going to guess that they were comfortable looking the other way if they had any suspicions that Amy's behavior was unsafe and unhealthy. And chances are, if your teen is living la vida loca, she probably is going to throw a house party when the parents are out of town. Whatever the case was, either they told Amy no parties allowed and she never had any intentions of obeying the rules, or they said she was allowed to have friends over for whatever kind of get-together that teenagers have, and they left it at that, or her parents knew full well that Amy was going to do what Amy was going to do, and there was nothing that they were willing to do about it. Obviously, they were on some level comfortable with leaving Amy home. They chose not to take her along on the vacation. Whether Amy protested going or not, ultimately it's up to the parents if she stays or if she goes. They didn't make arrangements for a responsible family member to either stay with Amy or have Amy stay with them. They went on vacation out of town and left her with the house to herself. There is also the possibility that Amy was doing a complete snow job on her parents, totally pulling the wool over their eyes and that they were under the impression that she was their precious little angel who would never and could never. I'm not quite so quick to buy this scenario because they did do an interview on TV and they said they admitted that they didn't have much say in what Amy did or didn't do. So surprise, surprise, Amy threw a party. It was all the fun stuff, the drinking, the smoking, the partying, etc. 
Sarah, Miss Lancaster, was there, along with Jennifer, the bad girl. She was there. And their young, sweet, naive friend, Shaylin, was there as well. But Shaylin did not come alone. She was accompanied by her older brother, Ricky, who would be turning 21 in just a couple months' time. Ricky wasn't in college, but rather he was in the same line of work as his dad, an electrician. They worked together for the company. And I'm not talking about the type that comes to your house and fixes your broken outlet. They worked on high-voltage outdoor power lines, precarious work, and Ricky was well-compensated, making exceptionally good money for a young man of all but 20 years of age. And his financial situation was enhanced even more so due to the fact that he still lived at home with his family. In fact, Ricky had just purchased a brand new BMW. He was tall and he was really cute. And even though Ricky was only 20 years old, he was mature for his age. And I know it doesn't really seem like that considering he's shown up at a house party with a bunch of high school girls. But I mean, he was dedicated to his job. He worked hard and he was pretty responsible. And all of that combined... To the girls that were at this party, Ricky was a catch, and he quickly caught Amy's eye, but also the eyes of another one of her friends. It doesn't sound like the other girl put up much of a fuss over it because Amy quickly won out in the end. From the night that they met at that party, Amy and Ricky became inseparable. He fell pretty hard and fast for Amy even though she was about four years younger than him and still only in the 10th grade. He showered her with gifts and they began taking vacations together. I mean, it moved very quickly. It's actually kind of surprisingly fast how quickly this story moves along. When we get to the end, you're going to be like, dang, that escalated fast. I actually find that taking vacations together was a little bit... I don't know, maybe I'm being kind of a prude, but it seems a little inappropriate. But you kind of have a hint here is what's going on with Amy's parents. Because I know when I was 16, there isn't any way my parents were going to let me travel anywhere with a boyfriend, much less an older boyfriend. But there didn't seem to be anything standing in Amy's way as she freely pursued this new relationship with Ricky. There was basically little to no pushback from her mom and dad. Ricky did introduce Amy to his parents, Richard Sr. and Debbie, and they were not at all impressed with their son's new girlfriend, not even remotely. From the sounds of an interview that they have given, it seems like their impression of Amy was that she was just using Ricky, that she was really cute and attractive, and she used that to her advantage. They felt like she was very calculating and manipulative, and while that may be the case, it doesn't really sound like anybody was really twisting Ricky's arm, at least not in the beginning. If he was going to want to buy her gifts and take her on road trips or whatever, it's a new relationship, a new love. It's fun and exciting. So he's going to do what he wants to do also. But his parents viewed it as him just being really sprung on this girl and her taking advantage of that fact. But I do think the same can be said for her. The relationship is also new to her. 
and it was fun and exciting and it was brand new and he spoiled her and she's only 16 so she's not going to say no to being showered with all of this attention and gifts. So in the beginning, whatever it was that Amy wanted from Ricky and what Ricky wanted from Amy, it was kind of mutually beneficial. Ricky's parents did say in the beginning that they didn't like the way that Amy treated their son. They felt like she was using him and manipulating him. But then they said when they found out how old she was, that really only compounded how negatively they felt about their son being with her. But I'm not clear when they found out that Amy was underaged. If Ricky had hidden it from them in the beginning and they found out later, I guess it's not something you ask outright when you first meet someone. However, Amy was Ricky's little sister's friend first. So I don't know if they just didn't know Amy before when she was just Shaylin's friend or if they didn't know of her or they didn't put two and two together right away. And it is likely that he didn't tell them. But from the way they told it, it seemed to be something that they found out sometime after the fact, after they learned of Ricky and Amy being together. When they did find out, they grew very concerned. One of their first thoughts was, what if Amy and their son get pregnant? And before you know it, Ricky is facing the possibility of being charged with statutory rape. So not long after Ricky's mom and dad found out that Amy was only 16, his mom, Debbie in particular, began growing increasingly concerned about what Amy was up to. Where was she going with this relationship? She said that she just got this vibe that Amy was always up to something, like she had an agenda. And considering what I mentioned earlier about Amy leading up to her having met Ricky, and getting into a relationship with him that she was a little bit of a party girl, a little bit of a mean girl, the drinking, the drugs, the defiance that she exhibited towards her parents, we can kind of infer that she was trouble. And Debbie wanted to try and protect Ricky from making a really big, huge mistake by getting dragged into whatever Amy had up her sleeve. So Debbie was going to do what she could to try and cool the relationship down a bit. Considering Ricky still lived with them rent-free, Debbie decided to lay down some new rules. Ricky actually lived in a small guest house on the property, so Debbie told him Amy was not allowed to stay at the guest house overnight at all. Well, if Amy isn't one to listen to her own parents, she certainly isn't going to listen to the rules of anyone else's parents. Ricky's mom and dad stated that Amy would try to get around their rules. She would try to be sneaky. She would try to be hiding someplace in the house or in the bushes or whatever. But, you know, I don't think it's totally fair to put all of that on her because it does take two to make things happen. It doesn't exactly sound like Ricky was telling Amy, well, you know, I have to respect my parents and this is their house, their rules, blah, blah, blah. So after a very short time of trying to duck and dodge the rules, his parents were finally like, you know what, if you're going to disrespect us, then you're going to have to find another place to live. This can't keep happening here. We can't have you sneaking around with Amy. You got to start following the rules or you got to go. Ricky's mom and dad figured that this ultimatum would knock some sense into their son. 
that he would look at the situation logically that he is messing around here with jailbait. Amy is only 16 years old. There is the potential for him to get in a lot of trouble, to go to jail and to have to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life, that he lives here on the family property, basically in his own house, rent free. Is he really going to want to sacrifice it all just so his girlfriend can stay over with him at night? To mom and dad, it was a no-brainer. There was no way that he was going to give up everything for this young girl who was potentially going to bring about a whole world of trouble. What mom and dad didn't factor into the equation is that Ricky isn't thinking with his brain. Any of us could have seen this coming. He chose sleepovers with Amy over his parents. He found a cheap apartment in a not-so-nice section of Lancaster, and by the summer of 1997, Ricky and Amy had set up house. Well, his parents were mortified that their son chose to move out in order to live with Amy so he could be with her whenever he wanted. After all, remember, this is illegal. She is 16, set to turn 17 later on that summer, and Ricky was already 21 by then. So they figured their next best course of action would be to reach out to Amy's parents and get them to take control of their wayward daughter and make her stay put at home where she belongs. That would be the logical thing to think parents of a 16 and a half year old would do, right? I mean, okay, I didn't have that hard of a time with my own daughter when she was a teenager. She was pretty social. She had some close friends. She played sports. But, you know, she depended on me for rides and for money. I wasn't overly strict or overbearing. But at the same time, we were also really close. And she was very attached to me throughout high school. She didn't get her driver's license until she was 19 because she kind of was a nervous driver. But it wasn't until then that she began becoming more and more independent. So I didn't deal with this type of disobedient teenager. And then for a minute, I binge watched a bunch of Dr. Phil episodes. And I see all these parents coming on the show seeking help for their out of control teens. And it really seemed like there were more girls than boys in these cases. And you see these kids that are anywhere from like 12 or 13 to 18 years old, some even older who still depend on their parents and they are just on this very self-destructive path and the parents just don't know what to do. Their kids have horrible tempers. They're violent. They end up calling the police on each other. Sometimes the kids get arrested. Sometimes the parents get arrested. And for the most part, Dr. Phil puts the bulk of the blame on the parents. Yet sometimes I sit there and think, well, Dr. Phil isn't wrong that the parents are making these mistakes, I still don't know what in the world I would do if I had a violent, out-of-control kid that just refused to listen to me, refused to stay home, refused to stop drinking or doing drugs. You can't lock up your kid. You can't watch them 24-7. So it's tough. In the story about Amy and her parents, they kind of expressed a similar sentiment that Amy wanted freedom. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. She refused to follow any rules and that they had just lost all control. Amy does what Amy wants and that's it. But Ricky's parents assumed that if they went over Amy's head and went straight to her parents, that they would side with them 
and with a united front, they would be able to get Amy to stay home living with her parents where she belongs. However, that isn't exactly what happened here. And to me, this wasn't really about her parents, Larry and Georgia, not being able to rein their daughter in. The fact of the matter is, and the impression that I got, is that they pretty much approved of Amy's relationship with Ricky. In an interview, they said that not only did they approve of the relationship, that they liked him, that he treated their daughter really well. And because when it came to their own relationship, when they met, Georgia was 17 and Larry was 24, which is an even bigger age difference than Amy and Ricky. They've been married for 34 years and it's worked out all right, so they say. The age difference wasn't and isn't an issue. And what's more, even if it was, or if they did disapprove of their daughter's relationship with Ricky, it wasn't like they had any sort of say in what she did or who she was with. So when Ricky's parents tried to get them on their side, at first, the Pressmeyers told the Cowles that they had no intentions of having Amy move out of their home. That's silly. She's 16. This is where she lives. And his parents were like, okay, well, that's good. But then within a couple days, Amy was living with their son at his new place. So from there, Amy's parents basically just shrugged their shoulders and were like, well, what do you want us to do? We can't control Amy. She doesn't listen to what we have to say. And that was that. A week after Amy moved in with Ricky, she did something that seems like Ricky never expected or even saw coming. Amy's friends moved into the apartment too. So it looks as if Ricky's parents were kind of on the right track here. Amy was up to something and that something was turning into the place that she has with Ricky as being her new hangout party spot. I can't imagine that this was something that Ricky had anticipated living with a bunch of teenage girls. He most likely wanted to have his very first serious mature relationship here go to the next level by living together. He was living in the guest house at his mom and dad's. He has this girlfriend. He's 20, 21 years old. He should be able to have whoever he wants over whenever he wants, which is why he chose to move out because he didn't want to follow his parents' rules. However, he was very dismissive of the fact that Amy was only 16 years old. He was potentially getting himself in a lot of trouble, but seeing as her parents were cool with their relationship, he really didn't have to worry about that. But still... That certainly doesn't change the fact that she is only 16 years old and clearly very immature. And if she doesn't get along with her parents and she's rebelling and partying and drinking and using drugs or whatever, Ricky obviously didn't take any of that into consideration when he thought she was mature enough to be living with him on their own. And as for Ricky, he may have been a bit more on the mature side, but that doesn't mean that he's capable of making sound decisions or having clear judgment simply due to the fact that he's young too and just hasn't had all that much in the way of life experiences either. Both of them moved way too quickly and they were just going to have to learn the hard way. But Amy's girlfriend's moving in? 
That should have been a huge red flag that this 16 year old girlfriend of his is not looking for the same things that Ricky was looking for. The friends that moved in there were Miss Lancaster, Sarah, and bad girl, Jennifer. They were both 18. By this time, it was the summer of 1997, and they had just graduated from high school. Amy was headed into only her junior year that coming fall. They were all more than happy to get out of their parents' house and took up Amy's invite to move in without hesitation because, hey, there was plenty of partying left to be done. And now Amy's managed to score her own place where every night they could have a party. There was just one slight problem with that when it came to Amy. It turns out she was pregnant. While that would throw a monkey wrench into the drinking and the drugs, that wasn't going to put a stop to all the fun. And as far as I've come to understand, Amy did refrain from using substances during her pregnancy. So there was at least one wise, mature decision that she did make in all this mess. Amy told her mom and dad pretty early on when she found out that she was having a baby. While they said that they were incredibly disappointed, they did continue to defend their parenting choices. But to me, they sort of contradicted themselves because at first they would say or they said that they raised their children to abstain from sex until marriage, which may work for some kids. But considering how out of control they acknowledged Amy was and how much she didn't just disobey her parents, but just flat out ignored them, they sort of just threw their arms up at the whole thing. They insisted they had no control Despite all of that, they had to know. I have a hard time believing that they thought of all the rules that Amy refused to follow, that the one she decided to obey was to abstain. And I said that they kind of contradicted themselves by saying something along the lines of Amy knew about contraceptives. For one, of course she knows about contraceptives. If her parents weren't talking to her about it, then she was either learning it from school or learning about it from her friends or whatever. But secondly, knowing about contraceptives doesn't mean that she's going to use them. So if Amy's mom and dad were pushing abstinence, then I would tend to doubt that they had serious talks with her about protection. And if they knew Amy was drinking or using drugs, which I don't know if they did or not or to what extent they knew, but if they knew their kid was basically out of control and out of their control, then they could have gotten ahead of this whole thing by having Amy placed on birth control. Because when you mix drinking and drugs and immaturity and irresponsible behavior, it's not a stretch to assume that your teen is going to have poor judgment and make questionable, reckless choices. But then again, if they were really believing that Amy was going to wait and save herself for marriage, well, then there would be no reason for them to think about doing that. It's like they're telling us, well, our daughter doesn't listen to us. She doesn't follow the rules. She's acting up in every other way under the sun, but she'll definitely remember that we taught her that abstinence is the way to go. And Amy was left to make her own choices and her own decisions, and she ended up 16 and pregnant. Not a shocking turn of events. Amy's mom and dad said they were disappointed, but come on. 
Did they think Amy moved in with Ricky so he could help her with her geometry homework while at the same time their little angel rebuffed any and all of Ricky's sexual advances, insisting that she was raised to wait until marriage? As if that's the one thing her parents taught her that she was actually going to stick by. Please. And as for Ricky's parents, they found out later on that they were pregnant. He didn't tell them right away, but eventually they found out. So, to review, within months of meeting and quickly becoming romantically involved with Amy, Ricky decided to move out of his parents' guest house because he wanted to carry on with his relationship with Amy on his own terms. He doesn't seem to have much to worry about in terms of facing any sort of criminal charges, seeing as her parents approved of their relationship and of Amy moving in with him. Within a week of moving in, Amy has her two BFFs, Sarah and Jennifer, move in too. And then before long, Amy and Ricky find out that they are expecting a baby. While some of Amy's partying ways had to be tabled because of the pregnancy, it did not necessarily mean that she was going to have to completely drop her very active social life. While Ricky expected the two of them to settle into their new place, foster their still budding relationship, and then of course get ready for the baby, focus on taking care of the little family that they were about to start. The problem was and it was a big, huge problem for Ricky, he did not want Amy's friends at their apartment. After a long day's work, working on those electrical lines and whatnot, and this is the summer, so it's hot in Lancaster, he wanted to come home to his girlfriend, to his own place, relax and unwind. He didn't want to come home to his place being overrun by a bunch of teenage girls. It was putting a serious damper on the relationship, at least for Ricky it was. As fast as it had taken off in the beginning, within weeks of moving in, maybe even days, it had sputtered to a feeble limp. Eventually, Ricky decided to put his foot down and he told them all that Sarah and Jennifer had to go. But all this did was cause tensions between Ricky and Amy to intensify. They bickered and fought over just about anything that they could bicker and fight about. And even though Amy's friends were living there at the apartment was the big immediate issue, the underlying issues had more to do with the fact that the two of them moved way too fast. And I'm going to keep going back to that because it was a huge mistake for them to, to go there that quickly. Ricky may have thought he was ready to take their relationship to the next level by moving in, but he seriously failed to take into consideration how difficult teenagers can be. Girlfriend or not, Amy was still only 16 years old. She just finished the 10th grade. Her own parents don't seem to care much one way or the other if she stays living with them or not. I mean, that's a big red flag in and of itself. But when you really break it down, teenagers can be difficult to live with, period. He may have been sorely mistaken in thinking that his sweet, loving girlfriend was going to be waiting patiently at home for him to come in from work and have dinner ready and a quiet evening together. Many of us have had 16-year-olds, and I am 100% certain that my 16-year-old absolutely would not be spending her summer playing house and doing chores and prepping dinner for some guy. No way. Even if she wanted to come home right after school, and that's a big if, 
you best believe she's going to be trudging into the house, dropping her backpack wherever, kicking her shoes off, however, throwing her socks into the hamper, but missing it, flopping down on the bed, turning on the TV, the tablet, the laptop, everything that has a screen has to be on, but really only stare at her phone while she asks me for food. At the same time, she exasperatingly tells me, I will when I tell her to get her homework done. And mind you, I didn't even have the same things going on with my daughter that Amy's parents had going on with her when it came to all the partying and the boy craziness. As I said, fighting between Amy and Ricky carried on and only grew worse over time. And when I say over time, I'm talking about just a matter of days and weeks. Now, according to Amy's friend, Sarah, the lesser of the two troublemaking troublemakers, She claimed that the fighting between the two of them often drove Amy to tears, that she wanted to end the relationship, but she said that Amy was afraid that Ricky's mom and dad would take the baby away from her. Now, I don't know why I'm kind of bothered by this assessment of Amy's state of mind at that time. I mean, this is coming from her friend, and obviously her friend knows her better than any of us ever would. But because I know how this story has played out thus far and how the story is going to end, I'm not so convinced Amy is as worried about the baby as much as she is worried about losing her party place with built-in friends. Because if she was worried about her relationship with Ricky and about being able to properly provide for and be there for the baby, the solution to their problems is as simple as asking her friends to move out. But because she's letting these two friends come between herself and Ricky, it leads me to jump to the conclusion that her priorities are with her friends, not with Ricky and not with the baby. Bottom line, there is no reason in the world that those two girls needed to be living there. And I personally think it was outrageous of all three of them, Amy, Jennifer, and Sarah, to just assume that it was all right for them to crash at that place that Ricky was paying for fully 100% and that he should just suck it up and be okay with it. It's just ridiculous to me that all three of them thought that this was somehow okay. And when it comes to this nonsense about Amy being afraid that Ricky's mom and dad were going to take the baby away from her if she broke up with him, that's ridiculous too. Unless there was something else going on here. Now, for starters, I gave Amy the benefit of the doubt that when she found out she was pregnant, that she stopped drinking and using drugs. It didn't seem like there was an issue that anyone was pointing to as to it being something that Amy was doing, that anyone was concerned about it. It was like one of the few things that she was actually being responsible about. But if she expressed fear that Ricky's parents were going to somehow get custody of the baby, it would have to be for a serious reason like that, that Amy was abusing substances during the pregnancy or was being neglectful or unfit and that the baby would be taken from her and placed with his parents. It was either that or maybe Ricky himself was making that threat that if she didn't get rid of her friends, that he was going to move out of the apartment and take the baby with him and go back to his parents' house. And even if he did make that threat, which there is no evidence that he ever did, it's unreasonable of Amy to think that Ricky and his parents would be able to get away with something like that. And besides, it wasn't like she and her parents didn't have leverage on their side, because at any point in time, Ricky could be arrested and charged with statutory rape. If threats are being thrown around, to me, Amy and her family really had the upper hand here. 
All of this is to say is that it leaves me doubting that there was ever any real fear of losing custody of the baby. And it's irrational kind of thinking. And I don't think she questioned leaving Ricky over that. I'd sooner believe that she simply didn't want to stop living with her girls. And she didn't want to lose Ricky, who was her cash cow. She didn't want to have to go home to her mom and dad's where things would probably be even worse for her once the baby came and she had no choice but to sit her ass at home and take care of the brand new baby. Shoot, if I was Amy and I was expecting a baby and I had my two best friends plus my baby's daddy under one roof, she's got built-in nannies all right there. She just wanted everything to be as convenient for herself as possible. She was 16. She wanted her parents out of her hair. She wanted her own place. She didn't want to have to work. She had her best friends handy at all times. She had her boyfriend there working hard and taking care of everything. And when the baby would come along, he'd be there to take care of that too. So when her friend described her as having contemplated leaving Ricky, I don't think it was something Amy was considering because she was using him. She may have threatened him with walking out on their relationship in order to continue getting things her way, but I don't think that there was any serious consideration of completely letting Ricky go or walking away from the whole thing because she wanted everything that he had to offer. So that was a bunch of my own opinions thrown in there. But anyway, once things started going kind of bad between Ricky and Amy, there came a point when he needed to break the news to his mom and dad that he and Amy were expecting a baby. They did have their see, I told you so moment, and it was something that they had worried about, not only because the both of them were too young, the relationship progressed too fast, neither one of them were ready to raise a baby, but a lot of his parents' worries were due to the fact that Amy was underage and that they feared Ricky would be facing charges and have to register as a sex offender. Though I don't think the thought really ever crossed Amy's parents' minds. They very clearly stated in their TV interview that I watched that they liked him. He was good to Amy and that was good enough for them. They weren't going to have him tossed into the clink. Ricky needed to tell his parents about Amy's pregnancy because, well, for one, they needed to know. But more than that, he really needed some guidance as to what he was going to do, not only about the baby on the way, but what he was going to do about Amy as well. He told him that things were kind of difficult between the two of them. His parents made the same claim that Amy's friend Sarah did, that Ricky was contemplating ending their relationship, but insisted that he was committed to taking the baby, being there and not being an absentee dad. They further claimed that Ricky told them that what he wanted from the relationship was far different than what Amy wanted, that Amy wanted to get married, and that's far different than what her friend had stated that Amy was wanting to leave the relationship. But according to Ricky's mom and dad, Amy was talking marriage and claimed that he was the one that didn't want that. He wasn't ready to get married. He was coming to a point where he needed to figure out what to do next, that he was dealing with a tremendous amount of turmoil over all of this, that the two of them fought constantly to a point where he had to tell Amy that she needed to go home to her mom and dad that they needed some time apart to regroup, to do some soul searching, and to figure out exactly what it was that they wanted to do. And apparently it only took one weekend of them being apart for Ricky to decide that he was seeing things a little bit more clearly. His parents said that he was excited about the prospect of having a life and a family with Amy, that he had taken a little bit of time to think it all over, 
and that he knew what he wanted and was confident that everything would work out in the end. They were having a baby, so they needed to make it work no matter what. His parents said he had a better outlook on everything, that he was content, he was looking forward to being a dad, and he was doing what he could to work it all out with Amy so they could raise this baby together. According to Amy's parents, she had come to a similar realization, at least that's what she told them. She wanted the father of her child to have an active present role in the child's life, and her parents insisted that Amy and Ricky would be able to work it all out, according to Amy. Soon, they found out that they were having a girl. So as far as anyone knew in this very short span of time, things between Ricky and Amy apparently had calmed down. At least that's what the grandparents, the grandparents-to-be thought. They believed that everything was apparently well. Now, dreamers, I have to tell you that the time that Ricky took a weekend apart to rethink their relationship to the time that things suddenly took a tragic turn, only one day had passed, just one day. And it will become clear once I explain what happened next. It was the evening of Tuesday, August 12th, 1997. It was just that previous weekend, the Saturday and Sunday, that the two of them had spent apart to take stock of their relationship. So only one day had passed. As usual on that Tuesday, Ricky had left home early to go to work. By this time, Sarah and Jennifer had agreed to move out. They were either moved out or in the process of moving out. They weren't there by this day. After Ricky went to work, Amy left for the day. She left a note for Ricky telling him that she was out, but promised that she would be home by 9 p.m. so they can have some alone time. She spent the day with Jennifer doing whatever it was they were doing. I'll get more into those details a little bit later. She fully expected Ricky to get home sometime before she would and that he would find the note from her promising to be there by 9 p.m. for that all-important alone time. So Ricky would presumably get home take a shower, get comfortable, unwind, and wait for Amy to arrive home. At some point during the afternoon, Amy called Ricky's cell phone to confirm that he would be coming home that evening and that she would be there by 9. Which, I don't know, it sounds a little sketchy to me because if she left him a note telling him that she would be there so they could spend time together, it wasn't necessary for her to be calling him. He was going to be home before then. He usually got home sometime between 5 and 6. He was out working on power lines. This was August in Lancaster, so it's got to be well over 100 degrees, which is 38 Celsius. If she left him a nice note at home, letting him know to expect her around 9, there didn't seem to be any reason for her to have to call him to confirm the plans, as she stated as being the reason for her to call him. I mean, if the plan is for him to go home after work, this isn't an activity that requires that much more confirmation. Where else is he going to go after work in the Southern California desert in the middle of August? Well, as it were, later that afternoon, Ricky and his dad had some overtime. They were scheduled to set up some outdoor lighting for the upcoming county fair. And while Ricky was there, Amy's calls seemed to increase in frequency as she continued asking him with each call when he was going to be home. And to me, it 
shouldn't have really made a difference to her when he arrived home so long as he was there by 9 p.m. when she promised she would be there too. If she really wanted to have a fun evening of it, she could have been the one to go home first, get the place all set up, light some candles, put on some music, wear something cute, and wait for him to show up. That would have probably been something that Ricky would have appreciated, not calling him all afternoon, bugging him about when he's going to be home. So this right here starts to raise a little bit of a teeny tiny red flag. This was 1997. Cell phones were different back then. It was often expensive. There wasn't very much in the way of texting just yet. It was in the very, very early stages. Texting didn't really take off until 1999 or 2000 or so. The phones that were popular back in 97 included Motorola, Nokia, and Ericsson. Minutes were very, very limited. So it wasn't like people could blow up each other's phones without it costing a bunch of minutes and a bunch of money if you went over. The point is, if the plan is to meet up at home in the evening for a romantic night alone, there is no need to keep checking up on where Ricky's at and when he's going to be back. He'll be home. He's just got to finish up his damn work. Ultimately, Ricky would arrive home just about 9 p.m. And just as Amy had promised in her note and in her numerous calls to Ricky, Amy arrived home around 9 p.m. too. But despite making the promise that she would be home by that time so they could be alone, she actually did not come home alone. She had her friend Sarah, Miss Lancaster, with her. Why did she bring her friend home when she was supposedly going to spend a quiet evening alone with Ricky? Well, there is a reason for that, and we'll get to it a little bit later. The girls start checking around the place to see where Ricky's at. Amy eventually heads up the stairs. She gets to the second floor. She switches on the bedroom light, and that's when she suddenly recoils backwards in horror, screaming as she sees Ricky laying on the floor of the bedroom, covered in blood, barely hanging on to life. Sarah ran up the stairs, too, and she saw Ricky on the ground. There was blood everywhere. She immediately filled with fear, thinking that whoever did this could possibly still be someplace inside. She tells Amy, let's go. We got to get out of here. They go back downstairs. Amy eventually dials 911, but she's too hysterical. So Sarah took the phone from her and explained that they just got to the apartment. They've been gone all day, that they hadn't been able to get a hold of Amy's boyfriend. And when they came up the stairs, they found him on the floor bleeding. He wasn't moving or saying anything. And as soon as they found him, they ran back down the stairs to call 911. Before long, Jennifer, the baddest girl of the bunch, showed up with another friend. They all stood around as Sarah continued talking to 911, describing Ricky as looking as if something had gone through his forehead, that he was slightly twitching or convulsing. As the emergency personnel showed up and attempted to save Ricky's life, there was an officer there with a video camera who captured footage of them working on Ricky. I've seen clips of it. It's very sad and difficult to watch. There's also footage of the girls who had been herded into the kitchen area away from everything by law enforcement while they tried to work on him. Ricky was carried down the stairs by the paramedics using a bed sheet so they'd have more room to try and save his life. At this point, Ricky was able to respond to some of the paramedics' questions. 
They asked him if he shot himself, and he said no. They asked him, who did this? And Ricky said, my neck hurts. Who shot you in the head? Who did this? The questions grew more and more desperate as they could see that Ricky was slipping away. At some point, Sarah had contacted Ricky's parents and told them that they needed to hurry up and get there, that something happened to their son. They rushed over, arriving while Ricky was still being worked on in the living room. There were so many people and so much chaos that it was difficult for them to figure out and comprehend what exactly was happening. All his parents knew was that their son had been shot and they were unsure as to what condition he was in, how serious it all was. All they knew was that paramedics were working desperately to save his life. Ricky was soon taken out of the home and brought to a helicopter that was waiting to airlift him to the hospital. His dad was able to ride with him. And while they were on their way there, Richard Sr. did what he could to get information from his son because he was still going in and out of being able to understand what was being said and he was talking a little bit, but he was in a tremendous amount of pain. All his dad could do was reassure him that everything was going to be okay. Ricky Cowles lasted two days. He was in a coma. I don't know for sure if he slipped into a coma or if he was put into a medically induced coma. And it was during that time that doctors did everything humanly possible to try and save his life. His family kept vigil at the hospital, as did Amy. Sadly, the brain damage Ricky suffered was too much for him to come back from. His life was being sustained by machines. Family gathered, Amy included, so they'd be able to each say their goodbyes. According to Ricky's mom, as a part of her farewell to Ricky, Amy said something to the effect of, Why did you have to up and die? You were supposed to buy me a car for my birthday. Ricky's mom said her immediate thought was, Am I hearing what I think I just heard? But drowning in grief, it was all too much to just sit there and try and think about. But it did strike her as odd, she said. If Amy was older, maybe in her mid to late 20s, and said something like that, I think I'd be more alarmed. But considering we're talking about this 16-year-old spoiled rotten brat, it really doesn't shock me one bit. Ricky Cowles was taken off life support. But in death, he was able to save other lives through organ donation. Amy ended up moving home, and while the Pressmeyers prepared for the arrival of their grandbaby, the cows focused on finding answers as to who murdered their son and why. They had no idea that they were embarking on a journey that would span the better part of 10 years. In total, Ricky and Amy lived together for all of one month at the time that Ricky was murdered. Amy was 15 weeks pregnant at the time. The investigation into Ricky's death got underway, headed up by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The question looming was who in the world would want Ricky Cowles Jr. dead? When taking a look into the victimology, there just wasn't anything going on with Ricky that put him into any real risk of being targeted for murder. He didn't seem to have any known enemies. He wasn't involved in anything illegal or nefarious. He wasn't associated with anybody particularly dangerous, at least not that anyone knew of right away. With the exception of occasionally smoking weed, he didn't use drugs. He didn't owe any dealers any money. He didn't have any other types of debt, like if he was into gambling or something like that. There just wasn't anything that stood out to detectives. 
All they can find was that he was just this regular guy who spent the bulk of his time working. He worked with his dad. They were together a lot. He may have stopped in for a beer once in a while when he was off work. Like I said, he occasionally smoked weed, which was illegal back then, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And they didn't find anything going on when they investigated that angle, wherever it was that Ricky bought his weed from. All in all, Ricky was just a regular working guy. When it came to physical evidence, crime scene technicians were able to recover one bullet shell casing. When it was tested, however, there were no fingerprints on it, nor were there any traces of DNA. There was nothing missing from the apartment. So if this was a burglary gone wrong, the intruders maybe unexpectedly encountered Ricky and in a panic, they shot him and fled the scene. They didn't take anything with them. There wasn't even anything ransacked. But it just didn't seem like that was the case either. There was no forced entry. So if the killer had been inside and was surprised by Ricky coming home, they were able to get in without breaking any doors or windows. No, it looked like whoever it was in the apartment that night was there with the sole intention of killing Ricky. But when it came to Amy and her circle of friends, there was Sarah, the pageant queen, Jennifer, the wild one, and Shaylin, who was Ricky's little sister. They were coming up with all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories, really off-the-wall ideas. They were tossing around all kinds of possible scenarios. Jennifer Kellogg opined that maybe it was Shaylin, claiming that she and Ricky were mad at each other, which... If I heard Jennifer saying something like that, and she's known to be the more problematic one of all the friends to go so far as to accuse the victim's own little sister of having something to do with her brother's murder just because she was mad at him, it wouldn't be causing me to look at the little sister as a suspect. It would actually cause me to look at the person making that kind of an accusation as being a suspect, if I'm being honest. Teenage girls... Well, teenagers, period, might not have known back then, and I don't even know if they'd know it now, but going around spreading rumors like this just doesn't help. Whenever young people like this are involved in a serious crime, and we hear about it later on, like on Dateline or on a podcast, it always turns out that these kids often just don't know when to shut up. So the girls... Amy and her friends are pointing fingers in every which way direction at anyone that they can think of. When there's no suspect, everybody gets to be a suspect, I guess, is the idea here. Eventually, the friendships between the girls began to deteriorate. Both Amy and Sarah stopped talking to Jennifer altogether. And while their relationships were splintering, Ricky's mom and dad couldn't help but suspect that these girls knew more than they were letting on about what happened to their son. While they wanted to keep their distance as much as they could, they were torn up about it all because Amy was set to give birth to their deceased son's child. When Amy was admitted into the hospital going into labor, it was a friend of the family who called Richard Sr. and Debbie to tell them that it looked like they were about to become grandparents. They were heartbroken because the fear had already set in that because their son was dead, they weren't going to be able to have a relationship with his child. They didn't get to be there at the hospital when their granddaughter was born, a little more than four months after their son was murdered. On January 23, 1998, 
Kaylee Lynn Cowles came into the world. A month or so after Kaylee was born, Ricky's parents had become frustrated with the investigation into their son's murder. It had been more than five months and there'd still been little progress. So Richard Sr. and Debbie decided to set up a reward fund for any information leading to the arrest and prosecution of the person or persons responsible for Ricky's murder. They had a whole bunch of flyers printed up and they set out to post them all over Lancaster. Ricky's little sister, Shaylin, she went over to the Pressmeyers' home to drop off some flyers so they could pass them around to try and get some leads on the case. When she came to the door, Amy's dad, Larry, answered and he invited her in so she could meet her baby niece. She was the first one on Ricky's side of the family that actually got to hold Ricky's infant daughter. She called her mom and shared with her that she'd got to see and hold their granddaughter. The cows had not been involved in any aspect of Amy's pregnancy. There had only been a very short amount of time that passed between the time when Ricky told them that they were having a baby and the time that he was murdered. They weren't happy with Amy being with their son to begin with, and it only got worse when they found out she was pregnant. But before there was any kind of chance for the dust to settle, Ricky was dead. His parents had their suspicions that Amy and her friends knew more about what happened to him, so it made navigating any kind of relationship with Amy so that they could have a relationship with the baby virtually impossible. Neither family was able to put aside their differences, so Amy carried on with the pregnancy with the support of her own parents, while Ricky's parents were pretty much out of the picture. They just didn't see any way around it. However, with the baby's arrival, they figured out a way to bridge that gap. As tenuous as you would imagine that bridge would be, they were able to do it so that all the grandmas and grandpas could be in this baby's life. A few days after Shaylin visited Kaylee for the first time, Ricky's mom and dad were able to do the same. It was an incredibly bittersweet moment, being blessed with this beautiful baby girl, yet still feeling destroyed by having lost their own son so violently and so senselessly. And it didn't feel like it was going to get solved anytime soon. Well, Fortunately, investigators would come across a decent, viable lead in the case. Actually, it was a pretty damn good lead, much to the relief of Ricky's grief-stricken family. And just like that, seemingly out of nowhere, police effected the arrest of a 19-year-old man who lived within walking distance of the apartment that Ricky and Amy shared for all of one month. His name was William Hoffman. He mostly went by Billy, but I'm going to call him Hoffman. And he actually pretty much basically handed himself over to police on a silver platter. Remember earlier when I said that teenagers will often have loose lips? They're gossipy. In this case, they were pointing fingers and coming up with theories about the murder and whatnot. Well, Billy Hoffman here was no exception. Well, except for the fact that he took things next level by not just gossiping or coming up with theories. He went so far as to brag to friends that he was the one who committed the murder. Like this guy did not hold back. He pretty much told anyone who would listen that it was him. I guess he thought that it made him seem like really cool or like a tough guy that he did something like that. 
Well, he apparently didn't take it into consideration that for starters, people aren't comfortable consorting with an admitted murderer as one might think. And there was also the fact that there was a reward for information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for the murder. There was one girl who would come forward later on with information who said that while she and Hoffman often ride share to work, there was a day when they were driving and then there were some helicopters hovering overhead. Maybe it was the sheriff or possibly the media circling the area above Amy and Ricky's apartment. Hoffman pointed to the helicopters and said to his co-worker, do you see that? They're, the area that they're searching, they're looking for me. I'm the one that did that. However, when Hoffman was taken into custody, he denied involvement. But numerous people were starting to come forward contacting the sheriff's department to report that Hoffman admitted to being the one who murdered Ricky Cowles Jr. Not only did Hoffman admit to being responsible for the killing, he also said that he had a friend that helped him get the gun that he used to commit the murder, a guy named David Ashbury. So who is this Billy Hoffman person and how is it he came to murder Ricky? After he was taken into custody, Police went back to Amy's friends with a picture of Hoffman and they asked if they knew who this guy was. Amy's friend Jennifer, the bad girl Jennifer, recognized him, though she said that she had only met him once. The fact is, is that he was actually friends with Jennifer. He was a low-level drug dealer, but mostly a drug user. Sarah, pageant queen Sarah, recalled meeting him only one time, and it just so happened that she took a picture of him and Jennifer sitting next to each other smoking weed. Ricky's sister, Shaylin, she said that she met him one time too. And it happened to be the very weekend before her brother was murdered. This was the weekend that Amy and Ricky had decided to spend a few days apart to think about their relationship. Ricky wasn't at the apartment at the time, but Amy was there hanging out with her usual group of friends when Shaylin stopped in to hang out too. When she got there, she saw a guy that she hadn't seen before sitting in the living room. Jennifer introduced him as Billy. They were using LSD. At least Jennifer was possibly Billy. And Billy, he had come over to Amy and Ricky's place with Jennifer, and he was the one who supplied the acid. So it was Jennifer who brought Ricky into their little group of friends. Shailene would have no idea that this guy she just met would a couple days later, murder her own brother. So investigators had Billy Hoffman in custody. But when investigators and people close to the case stepped back and looked at the whole picture, the fact that it was bad girl Jennifer Kellogg who brought Hoffman into their inner circle had everyone wondering if she had something to do with Ricky's murder. After all, she and Sarah had moved in with Ricky and Amy very shortly after they got the apartment, and it was very shortly after that when Ricky demanded that the two of them take a hike. He didn't want them there, and it caused big problems between him and Amy, but it apparently caused Jennifer to become quite angry and resentful towards Ricky, too. Isn't this just the most entitled bunch of little mean girls ever? As if Ricky owed them all a place to live or something. But... A teenage girl throwing a hissy fit over getting kicked out of an apartment that she has no business being at in the first place is a far cry from up and murdering somebody. 
While it didn't matter here nor there, Hoffman was the one under arrest. He was the one being charged. He would be the one going on trial. He wasn't talking other than denying any involvement, nor was he implicating anyone else. Ultimately, Billy Hoffman was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So, life carried on. As the world ticked over into the new millennium, both Amy's family and Ricky's family were able to leave what happened in the past and cohesively work together to raise the little girl who never had a chance to meet her father. The man who killed him would have many, many decades in front of him to contemplate the violent act that landed him behind bars for the remainder of his natural life. And despite Ricky's parents' initial perception of Amy, after she had the baby, there was a shift. They really couldn't find too many negative things to say about her. In fact, they would describe her as being a wonderful mom. And over time, they were able to let go of most of the initial feelings that they had developed towards her when they first found out that she was dating their son. But there was still something about Ricky's murder that nagged at his parents. It was a feeling they couldn't shake, a feeling that there was more to this story. Billy Hoffman was convicted and put away for life, but there was something that they felt like he was holding in, something that he was keeping secret because even though he was serving his time and would never breathe free air again, they couldn't help but feel that this was a crime that he didn't commit on his own. And when you step back and look at the whole story, you can kind of understand why the thought that he didn't act alone tormented Richard and Debbie Cowles. Billy Hoffman didn't know Ricky. They had no business. They had no interactions. Ricky didn't owe him any money. They never met. There was just nothing between the two of them that would have been the impetus for Hoffman to have hid inside Ricky's apartment to lay in wait for him to come home and kill him. Ricky was attacked with a claw hammer and shot one time in the head. And Hoffman did it and left the apartment without taking anything. Not one single thing was stolen. Nothing was out of place. This was not a burglary gone wrong type of scenario. There was no sign of forced entry leading Ricky's parents to believe that he was given access to the apartment. And that could have been any one of the girls that lived there. Amy, Jennifer, or Sarah. But... Hoffman was Jennifer's friend first. She was the only one that was friends with him. He was her drug connection. There just had to be more to this because people don't sneak in to a stranger's home just to kill somebody that they don't know for no reason and run off without stealing anything. If there had been any sort of explanation given on Hoffman's part, maybe that would have given Ricky's parents something to hang on to but they just wanted some kind of explanation, even if it was something as petty as Ricky owing him $50 for some kind of drug deal or for some weed that he bought. Even that would offer something that made some kind of sense. As twisted as that would be, it was something. But Hoffman offered nothing because, of course, his defense was he didn't do it. So Ricky's parents were left trying to figure it out on their own what was going on beneath the surface. And that would be that for some years to come. 
Ricky's parents were just left with the feeling. That is until 2002, some five years after their son was murdered. Three years after the conviction, it was then they received a letter from Billy Hoffman from prison. All this time, Hoffman denied having anything to do with Ricky's murder. But this letter was him in a way getting the burden of what he had done off his back. And it doesn't happen all that often. We've covered lots of murders, and most of the time when the defendant insists that they didn't do it, that's usually their story that they're sticking to. But during this time in prison, Hoffman found God and needed to at least try to express his sorrow and remorse for the murder, something that he had never expressed to Ricky's parents because of his denials. But in taking responsibility and in offering his apologies, he was in effect for the first time admitting to what he had done. He was sorry that he killed Ricky. Whether or not that brought any sense of comfort or finality to the whole thing, who knows? Nothing brings back your dead child. It did bring tears to Ricky's mom's eyes as she read Hoffman's letter. As he wrote that this was something that he never should have done, and he hopes that there comes a day when they are able to forgive him. But as she looked down at the letter, reading it a couple of times over, she couldn't help but be bothered by the opening line of it. I would like to begin by confessing my part in the murder of Richard. What the hell did he mean by my part? It was in that moment that Ricky's parents knew that their hunch was right. If my part means what they think it means, then Billy Hoffman did not act alone. Richard Sr. and Debbie got that letter over to the district attorney on the double. And just like that, a case that they thought they'd long filed away as solved had suddenly come back to life some five years after Ricky died. Los Angeles County Sheriff's detectives headed over to the prison where Hoffman was sent to serve out his time to question him about what he meant by his part in this apology letter. In the recorded conversation, Hoffman was asked about his conviction. He said that he was convicted of murdering Ricky. They asked him to go back to the very beginning, when, where, and how this all came about. In the years since this happened, Billy had become overwhelmed with guilt about what he had done. He came to a point where he needed to get it off his chest, to come clean, to admit what he had done, and to share the truth about what really happened. He had secrets that he was finally ready to reveal. Hoffman couldn't exactly remember how many weeks before the murder had all started, but it wasn't very long, a couple of weeks at most. He was at home. Jennifer Kellogg was there hanging out. As the conversation carried on, Jennifer eventually asked Hoffman if he would ever kill somebody. With very little hesitation, Hoffman told her that he would. And from there, the plan was hatched. Hoffman said that after he told Jennifer that he was willing to kill somebody, he was brought over to the apartment where Amy lived with Ricky and Amy showed him the place. She gave him a tour so that he would have an idea of the layout. She gave him a picture of Ricky so he would know what he looked like. Remember, Billy Hoffman and Ricky Cowles never encountered one another before the night of the murder. Amy and Jennifer showed Hoffman where he would be able to hide inside their bedroom behind the door. If he left it ajar a little bit, he would be able to see Ricky coming up the stairs through the crack. And from here, dreamers, I'm going to 
share the details of what all happened as it's told in the court documents related to this case. In July of 1997, 21-year-old Ricky Cowles lived in a two-story apartment in Lancaster, California with his 16-year-old pregnant girlfriend, Amy Priestmeyer. Amy's friends, Jennifer Kellogg and Sarah Chapin, stayed with Ricky and Amy for about one week in August of 1997. Ricky did not approve of Jennifer and Sarah because they did drugs. This caused friction between Amy and Ricky who wanted them to leave. On Monday, August 11, 1997, they fought about whether her friends should leave. Amy told Ricky that she hated him. Amy's mother came over and told Ricky that Amy was not going to go home with her and that they needed to work out their problems because they were having a baby. And dreamers, again, I find this parenting decision questionable, in my opinion anyway. I think that they should have taken their daughter home and allowed for a cooling off period. Amy has been living with Ricky for one month. After one month, she's already saying that she hates him. Your 16 and pregnant daughter is telling you that she hates her baby's dad, yet you insist she stays put and deals with it? It's just my opinion, but that was messed up. And what it amounts to to me is that they just didn't want to be responsible for Amy anymore, and they certainly didn't want the added problems of a baby too. Deep down, knowing their daughter, Amy's parents were going to be the ones stuck with raising their grandchild. As far as they were concerned, in my opinion, she was Ricky's problem now, and they wanted it to stay that way. A minuscule amount of sage advice that Amy's mom did give was that perhaps it would be a good idea that the other girls, Sarah and Jennifer, moved out, which they ended up doing. The weekend prior to that conversation, August 9th and 10th, Ricky went with his family to Laughlin, Nevada. Amy was invited to go, but decided to stay home. And Ricky's sister, Amy's friend, Shaylin, she opted to stay home too. This was the short period of time that Ricky and Amy spent apart, taking time to decide what direction they wanted to go with their relationship. It was during this trip that Ricky expressed to his parents that he wanted to have this baby, he wanted to have a family with Amy, and he was going to give it his best effort to make things work. However, while Ricky was away for that weekend, Shaylin had gone over to Ricky and Amy's apartment. When she arrived, Sarah and Jennifer were there, as was Billy Hoffman, with whom Jennifer regularly hung out with and did drugs. Billy did know Amy as well. They knew each other since they were young children. They had grown up just a few houses away from one another, though they hadn't seen each other in many years. By this time, Hoffman was living in an apartment that was a pretty short distance away from where Ricky and Amy lived. Hoffman was not only a drug user, but he sold drugs. And that night, he had given some LSD to Shaylin and to Jennifer. It was also during the same weekend that Johnny Walls, a former boyfriend of Amy's, and another guy named Daniel Pitts drove over there to Amy's apartment to visit her at her request. At some point, Johnny and Amy shared a kiss and Amy gave him a letter where she expressed how unsure she was about her life, everything that was going on, and that she missed him very much. And he ended up staying the night, leaving the next morning. A couple of weeks before Tuesday, August 12, 1997, Jennifer asked Hoffman if he would kill somebody. He said that he would. Hoffman met with Jennifer and Amy at Amy's apartment. 
The girls gave Hoffman gloves and potatoes, which Hoffman believed would silence the noise that the gun would make. Hoffman was shown the layout of the apartment, including the master bedroom upstairs. Amy described Ricky's routine. He got off work around 5 p.m. He would park his car in the garage and he would go straight up into the bedroom. They discussed how to kill Ricky. Because Ricky might resist, Hoffman thought he should knock him out before killing him. Hoffman was also given a picture of Ricky that he burnt after the murder. Although they did not discuss exact financial details, Hoffman expected to be paid $500 to $1,000 for killing Ricky, but it was clear that he would be paid. Hoffman paid $100 to a close friend of his, David Ashbury, to get him a gun. Hoffman, David, and another one of their friends named Joey Green took the gun out to the desert and practiced shooting with it. They tried using the potatoes as a silencer, but they exploded. On the day of the murder, August 12, 1997, Ricky, who worked for his father's electrical company, left for work that morning. Amy left a note for him saying that she would be home by 9 p.m. as they had agreed that that would be their quiet time. Amy called him multiple times toward the end of his workday, asking what time he would be home and telling him to be home at 9 p.m. After work, Ricky declined his father's offer to get a drink, saying that he had to get home because he and Amy were working on their relationship. While Ricky was working, Amy and Jennifer drove to Santa Monica in the morning and returned to Lancaster later that afternoon. They went to go see Shaylin, Ricky's sister, who was working at her job at McDonald's that was only about a mile away from their apartment. Amy and Jennifer wanted Shaylin to go with them to get some ice cream at Baskin Robbins, but the whole thing seemed odd to Shaylin because this was the first time that Amy or Jennifer ever came by to see her at work. Shaylin often stopped by her brother's apartment when she was finished with her shift at McDonald's, but Amy told her not to come by because she and Ricky were going to be working through some of their problems. Jennifer and Amy picked up Hoffman from his apartment sometime between 5 and 6 p.m. They drove him to Amy and Ricky's apartment. He had the gun, a claw hammer, and a knife with him. Remember, Amy told Hoffman that Ricky was usually off by 5 p.m. But after waiting in the apartment for a couple of hours and Ricky hadn't shown up yet, Hoffman decided to give up. He left and started walking back to his own apartment. However, Jennifer and Amy drove by and they stopped him and told him that Ricky was running late and that he would be there soon. So they told him to go back and wait. He did as he was told and went back to Ricky and Amy's apartment and went back into his hiding spot. Remember, Ricky and his dad were working longer than usual because they were setting up the outdoor lighting fixtures for the upcoming county fair. Amy had been calling repeatedly to try and find out when Ricky was going to be coming home because everyone was growing anxious and impatient. When Hoffman finally heard Ricky's car pull into the garage around 9 p.m., he was still quietly hiding behind the bedroom door, just as the girls had suggested he do. Ricky made his way up the stairs, and as he entered into his bedroom, Hoffman struck him with the claw hammer, a direct blow to his skull. Ricky stammered, but the hit didn't knock him out like Hoffman thought it would. Ricky turned around and started yelling, and that's when Hoffman quickly shot him in the forehead. Hoffman hit Ricky two more times with the hammer before hurrying down the stairs and exiting the apartment through the front door. 
As instructed, Hoffman paged Jennifer with the number zero as an indication that Ricky was dead. Hoffman also called up the friend who had gone with him to the desert to practice shooting, Joey Green, to come to his apartment and to pick up the gun. In the meantime, Amy and Jennifer stayed out and away from the apartment. Around 8 p.m., the two of them had met up with Sarah and another guy named Jeff Shreves. Sarah was unaware of the plot to kill Ricky, as she was meant to be Amy's alibi. Amy told Sarah that Ricky was going to page her when he got home. From there, they went to the apartment of a guy named Kevin Tallwater, which was located in the same complex where Amy and Ricky lived, but they didn't go inside. They kind of stayed outside his apartment. Jennifer left with Jeff to go to a nearby dairy, and Amy eventually left with Sarah to go to Burger King. On the way back to Kevin Tallwater's apartment, Sarah made the suggestion that they go to her apartment to see if Ricky was there. But Amy said no, they were still waiting for his page, and she could see that the lights weren't on inside their place. When they were all back at Kevin's apartment, Jennifer made a telephone call to someone. When she hung up, she said, okay, we can go now. In separate cars, Jennifer and Jeff and Amy and Sarah went driving around to where Ricky and Amy's apartment was located in that complex. Amy and Sarah got there first, and they found that the front door was unlocked. Amy went to use the downstairs bathroom, and she asked Sarah to go upstairs to see if Ricky was home. Sarah wasn't all that comfortable with walking up the stairs, especially if Ricky was there. You know, he didn't want her or Jennifer there, so she decided to go ahead and check the garage instead. She saw that Ricky's car was parked there and surmised that he was indeed home. Sarah related to Amy that she saw his car and that he was there, and then Amy asked her to go upstairs to see if he was sleeping. Sarah began heading up the stairs, but then she smelled a strange odor, so she told Amy to go up and check on him instead. So Amy finally went upstairs herself. She turned on a light switch in the bedroom. She let out a scream, at which point Sarah ran up the stairs too. Ricky was laying on the floor of the master bedroom. Sarah took Amy back downstairs, at which point Amy ran out the front door. Jennifer and Jeff were just pulling up at that time. Amy hurried back inside and called 911. Sarah asked Jeff if he would go upstairs to check on Ricky, which he did, though he wasn't able to tell if Ricky had been shot or not. Ricky was airlifted to the hospital. His dad rode with him in the medevac while the rest of his family and Amy made their way there too. At the hospital, Amy appeared calm, but she was described as having become more emotional when it was evident that Ricky would not be able to survive his injuries. As Amy was in the hospital room by his bedside with his parents and siblings, Amy was crying, but she was heard saying that she couldn't believe that he was going to die because her birthday was coming up soon and he had promised to buy her a car. Ricky Cowles Jr. passed away on August 15, 1997. He had suffered a gunshot wound to the forehead, which was a near-contact wound. The coroner estimated that the gun was anywhere from a half an inch to two inches away from his head when the trigger was pulled. He had also been struck three times with an instrument consistent with a claw hammer. Ricky had no defensive wounds, meaning he was completely caught off guard and had no chance to fend off this surprise attack. Ricky's wallet still had all of his credit cards in it, as well as his identification and about $60 in cash. There were no signs of forced entry, and Ricky and Amy were the only ones who had keys to their apartment. 
The place had not been searched or ransacked and nothing was missing. A 25 caliber bullet shell casing was recovered. Three days after the killing, on Friday, August 15, 1997, Ricky's other sister, Jennifer Cowles Chavez, went over to the apartment to clean it. In a trash can, she found a note that was dated August 1, 1997, written to a guy named Jeff Bergener, a former friend of Ricky's, who at the time was in jail. Amy wrote that she and Ricky were good, but they had a huge fight about alcohol, drugs, respect, among other things. She also wrote that if they had a boy that Ricky wanted to name him Ricky the third after himself and his dad, but she wrote that absolutely no, I want a successful child. Shit, I'd name it Jeff before I'd name it Ricky. So dreamers, we're starting to get a glimpse of that other side of Amy. She obviously isn't interested in being in a committed relationship with Ricky, seeing as she was not only writing to this guy in prison, even going so far as to tell him that she would rather name the baby after him than after Ricky, as well as insulting Ricky by insinuating that he's a failure. But let's not forget the fact that she had an ex-boyfriend visit her while Ricky was away in Laughlin on a family vacation. This guy not only visited, he stayed the night. So what all is going on here? It kind of blows my mind just how crazy fast this whole story moved along with Amy and her friend Jennifer actually deciding that they wanted Ricky dead within maybe a couple of days after moving in with him. It's insane how fast that this all escalated to murder. And the fact that Amy's still trying to be involved with other guys. It's just a show of how manipulative this girl is. She's telling this guy in prison, in prison, that she would never name her baby after Ricky because she wants her child to be successful and that she'd rather name the child after the guy in prison because that's a signature characteristic of success, apparently. Not the guy who's making good money as an electrician, driving a new BMW and securing a place of their own so they could be together. No, that's not success at all, right? I don't believe for one minute that Amy Pressmeyer ever loved Ricky Cowles Jr., I don't think she liked him. In fact, I think the most honest thing she ever said about him is when she said that she hated him. She wanted to use him, to use him for a place to live, a place to party, a place to gather with her friends, and for a new car that she was expecting to get from him for her birthday. When she realized that he wasn't going to go along with her plans, when he objected to all the drinking and all the drug use and objected to having her best friends live there too, that's when Amy started to resent him. I said earlier that I was going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that I believe that she stayed away from the substances during the pregnancy, but that doesn't mean that Ricky wasn't concerned with it. There was no indication when Kaylee Lynn was born that she had been exposed to anything in utero. But Ricky was objecting to everything. He was objecting to her friends, objecting to their lifestyle. He just didn't want all this mess around his girlfriend carrying his unborn baby. That resentment developed into hatred to a point when she got to talking about it with Jennifer Kellogg and they hatched this plan to have him murdered all because poor little Amy wasn't getting her way. And I say hatred, it's a strong word. But you really got to hate somebody 
to want to have him shot between the eyes. The day after Billy Hoffman killed Ricky, he went to work. He told a co-worker friend of his named Heather Nadal what he had done, and she ended up being the one who got rid of the gloves and the claw hammer for him. Hoffman's own father disposed of the clothing that he was wearing when he committed the murder. Hoffman also told Jermaine McKnight, Robert Bobcock, Kyle Dunn, and Robert Tulk that he had committed the murder. Additionally, Hoffman told both Heather Nadow and Kyle Dunn that he had committed the murder at the behest of the victim's girlfriend. Following Ricky's death, Amy told Miss Lancaster, her friend Sarah, to be careful around Jennifer because Amy suspected that she might have something to do with what happened to Ricky. A few days after Ricky's funeral, Amy attended the county fair where he was the one that set up all the lighting. She was seen laughing and having a really great time. Amy told a young woman named Candace Orr that Ricky had completely ruined her birthday that he was the one who got her pregnant, which caused her to be unable to get drunk or to get high to celebrate. And since he was dead, he couldn't get her the car that he had promised. The following year, sometime in 1998, Hoffman's friend, Joey Green, was taken into custody for an unrelated crime. I imagine in an effort to help the case against him for the unrelated crime, that he told police that he had important information regarding the murder of Ricky Cowles. He might have even been after the reward money. As a direct result of the information provided by Joey Green, Hoffman was arrested in April of 1998 and charged with Ricky's murder. Hoffman's family hired him an attorney, and it was in that same month that he was arrested that he actually confessed to his attorney's legal assistant, Mary Briscoe, that he, in fact, did murder Ricky. He also told her that it was Amy and Jennifer who asked him to do it and helped him plan the murder. Billy Hoffman went on trial in 1999, but he continued denying killing Ricky, but instead claimed that it was Joey Green who killed him. Well, the jury didn't buy it as they ended up convicting Hoffman of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Three years later, he sent that letter to Ricky's parents where he confessed and apologized for his part in the murder. Afterwards, he spoke to detectives thinking that he would be able to receive some kind of benefit or amended sentence, though he was never made any sort of promise. In fact, the detectives told him that they could not and would not do anything to help him. He went ahead and told them the whole story behind the murder plot after deciding it was just the right thing to do. Amy Priestmeyer was arrested in 2005. On February 23, 2006, eight and a half years after Ricky's murder, Amy was charged with special circumstance murder committed by lying in wait, conspiracy to commit murder, and solicitation of murder. While in custody, she had a jailhouse conversation with Jennifer Kellogg that was secretly recorded. She said, If Hoffman doesn't testify, they don't have an effing case against me. Pretty much know that if Hoffman testify, he's going to cross all my effing people's path one day or another because you can't stay PC'd up forever, bitch. That's all I got to say to you, mother effer. You can't stay PC'd up forever, mother effer. And you're already sitting in there for effing life because you testified against yourself. So if he don't testify, they don't have shit. Not a goddamn thing. What a sweetheart, huh? 
all that grammar and profanity. And by PC'd up, I believe Amy was referring to Billy Hoffman being kept in protective custody because he had rolled over on her and now was considered a snitch and needed to be kept away from other inmates who might retaliate against him for that. When the detectives had gone to the jail to talk to Hoffman about his letter to Ricky's parents and Amy and Jennifer's involvement in the murder, they asked him why he agreed so readily to the request to kill somebody. He stated, There was just a glamorous kind of picture in your mind, you know, to be that person and cruising with your friends and just at that time I think I pursued that. I wanted to be that guy. When people knew it, it was kind of like having a notch on my belt, you know. So I guess that might explain why it was necessary for him to brag to so many people that he had actually done the murder. But you know, dreamers, as I read through the court documents, I was surprised that of all the people that he told that he committed this murder, it actually wasn't any of them who came forward to police with that information. In fact, several of them, even Hoffman's own father, helped him dispose of evidence, whether or not they knew it was evidence of a murder, I don't, not completely sure, but I suspect that the friends that he told might have known, but I don't know if his father actually knew. I just don't know. But everyone helped him get rid of the gun, the hammer, the gloves, and the clothing that he had on. Nobody turned that evidence in. Nobody tipped police off to Hoffman's various confessions. It wasn't until his friend got arrested for that unrelated crime and decided to spill the beans to try to get himself a better deal. You all may have noticed that a number of years passed between the time Hoffman spoke to detectives in 2002 about Amy and Jennifer's role in the murder and the time that Amy was actually arrested. It was about three years or so to be exact. That's because investigators couldn't exactly rely solely on the word of a convicted murderer. They were going to have to take some time to look more into the case, to gather evidence, and in the meantime, Ricky's mom and dad just had to wait on pins and needles. They had to continue on like everything was okay as they would pick up their granddaughter for their visits from Amy, who they were convinced beyond any doubt had arranged for their son to be killed. They knew the day would come. They just didn't know when. It just so happened to be around Easter of 2005 when investigators were confident enough with the case that they had built against Amy to move forward with obtaining a warrant for her arrest. By this time, Kaylee was seven years old and Amy was engaged. She was set to be married in just a few short weeks. Investigators called up Ricky's parents and finally told them the news that they had long been waiting for, that Amy was about to be arrested. Once they got word, they hired a family law attorney and immediately filed for custody of Kaylee, which they were granted. Of course, once Amy was arrested, a battle between the grandparents for custody would ensue, with Amy's parents placing the entire blame for everything that happened on Ricky's parents. If it wasn't for them, if they hadn't just left well enough alone, Amy would have never been arrested. Which surprises none of us, I'm sure, knowing what we know so far about Amy's parents. But they stood by their daughter, believing in her innocence that she had nothing to do with arranging to have Ricky murdered. 
Not for a moment did they ever have any doubt about that. However, the jury did not agree. On July 30th, 2007, just 15 days before the 10th anniversary of Ricky's death, Amy Pressmeyer was found guilty on all charges. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus one year for the gun enhancement. When she was being sentenced, the people who got the harshest lecture from the judge were none other than Georgia and Larry Priestmeyer. The judge told them that there was a total failure in parenting on their part, completely lacking of any sense of any kind of moral guidance and no sense of responsibility. They said it was difficult for them to be told that because they claimed that they did the best that they could. And dreamers, as harsh as I have been on them throughout this story as parents, I will almost always fall back on that same sentiment too. I usually believe that parents do the best that they can with what they have to work with. And that may have been all that they could do. I have not walked in their shoes, so perhaps it's not up to me to judge. Maybe I would have given up too if I lost complete control over my child. I don't know though. As for Jennifer Kellogg, prosecutors weren't really wanting to have to deal with yet another trial, so they went ahead and offered her a deal. If she would plead guilty to manslaughter and solicitation of murder, she would receive a sentence of 17 years. In January of 2006, David Ashbury pleaded no contest to being an accessory to murder. He was the one who helped Hoffman get the gun. He was sentenced to two years in prison. Unfortunately, there is not a whole lot out there in terms of updates here. Amy Priestmeyer today is 41 years old and is being housed at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. While she was sentenced to life without parole, her inmate page lists her eligibility of parole being in March of 2029. I cannot find if she won an appeal or if she had her sentence reduced because she was only 16 years old at the time that Ricky was killed. But anyway, there is a parole date listed for her. As for Jennifer Kellogg, when I looked her up on the California inmate search, I found her, but it says her admission date was October of 2020, and she's up for parole in February of 2022. It's been suggested that she may have been paroled for her conviction in Ricky's case and then rearrested, perhaps a parole violation. Dreamers, the media just isn't interested in these girls anymore. And as for Billy Hoffman, when I searched for him in the California inmate website, he's no longer there. I found one blurb about him in a blog that said he's been released, just one sentence. So, he apparently had his sentence reduced as well, maybe. While Hoffman was 19 when he killed Ricky, he did testify against Amy at her trial, and that might be the reason why he was able to broker a deal for himself in order to not have to spend the rest of his life in prison. And that, Dreamers, was the tale of a May-December romance. I want to thank you all for listening to this episode. 
please stay tuned for that promo from the world's dumbest criminals podcast. Don't forget to join the Facebook discussion group where you can share your comments and questions about this case. Perhaps share some of your best parenting tips. You can also follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram. Don't forget that there are nearly 70 episodes waiting for you on Patreon if you'd like to help support the production of this podcast. Thank you all again for everything. It's finally Christmas season. I'm kidding. Not really, but don't send me any hate mail. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, Merry Christmas. I'm just kidding. Sweet dreams. Did you hear about the Welsh tourists who got drunk and stole a penguin named Dirk from SeaWorld on the Gold Coast? Or the Canadian guy who tried to beat a breathalyzer test by eating his own underpants? Hey, I'm Tara Saraban from World's Dumbest Criminals, an upbeat podcast about deadbeat crims. Join me every Monday to hear about the most ridiculous, bizarre and downright stupid crimes and criminals in the world ever. Like the Australian man who put out an unsuccessful hit on his wife and freaked out when she crashed her own funeral. Or the Chinese woman who deliberately ran 49 red lights in her ex-boyfriend's car. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes, Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans.